0: regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. This is the classroom where we take on challenging studies over the internet so that you can join us wherever you are with whatever device you choose to use and uh, uh, It's also a classroom in that there's a corresponding group on Facebook that you can join and you can be a part of the conversation and uh, so we're really excited again to be back in the classroom studying episode three of the Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis book study. And uh, this is going to be a look at book one, chapter two. And uh, Bethany, before we get started, I get these emails from the publisher of the, the study guide that I've been using.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I got a rather interesting uh, email from them today. I just wanted to share parts of it. <clears throat> it says, out of all the apologetic works of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity has been his best-selling and undoubtedly most popular book since its release in 1952. But it was not Mere Christianity that propelled Lewis forward, but rather the Screw Tape Letters in 1942. Mere Christia- Christianity began as a series of radio addresses that Lewis delivered during World War II, these broadcast talks were printed as small pamphlets titled, The Case for Christianity, Christian Behavior, and Beyond Personality. It wasn't until the entire decade later, in 1952, that they were compiled into the book that we know today. So, uh, kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say that that, uh, a certain author who has written a book about the book, Mere Christianity, says that uh, the the first radio addresses that Lewis gave were actually directed towards Royal Air Force pilots and crews who Mm -hmm. were going to be headed into the war and might not return. So the scholarly Lewis found himself learning to communicate the basics of Christianity to those who were less educated, and that skill came in kind of handy as he began to address the masses on the radio so that's pretty well, interesting
2: and that kind of adds to like like I said that I thought it was interesting how he was saying like we kind of like we have to believe in a moral law that that exists because if not then we can't really say that the nazis are that the nazis were wrong or which, yeah. So that's kind of interesting if that, like, if originally he was talking to RAF pilots. Right. Because right. they might be needing to hear that as they're flying over France and Germany and fighting against other humans.
0: Now, ironically, the book was panned by most of the critics and contemporaries of Lewis in the days that it was written. Um, it's really interesting because. Uh, since 2001, the book has sold more than 3.5 million copies in English language. And that is really fascinating.
2: So and, was it panned because it didn't sound as scholarly?
0: Well, yeah, and it's because like like the, the email contains several examples of the criticisms that he got. And they basically all were criticisms basically uh saying you know that it was was too simplistic and it wasn't up to his intellectual capacity and
2: that's like why which, people buy it
0: which figures you know because eggheads like to read other eggheads work mm-hmm. i've said for years because you know when i was in seminary <laughs> both times i had to read so much of the the theologians you know the the great theologians and and they certainly have great ideas but what i realized early on is that theologians write to other theologians, and we're just we're just the, the little people who get to read what they wrote. And so they're always trying to one-up each other and, and influence each and, and I'm not saying that theologians don't do a valuable service to Christianity, but in the end, they're writing to each other, which means they have a language of their own, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's a multi-syllabic language where they try to invent bigger words because they're trying to say less. Uh, you know, by saying more in a single word, and so they come well, up with crazy words, you know and
2: and you know his contemporaries and critics, fifty years later, which book is still selling out, yeah and <clears throat> consistently being read all over because it's easy to understand, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so i mean i get I get that they might not think it's scholarly, but it, it is scholarly. But it's simplified, which is awesome.
0: Well, and and you know, I don't. I, there's probably a more reasoned and and thoughtful way to express this, but it seems like an awful lot of people's greatest works are never appreciated during their lifetime.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it just seems like that happens a lot, and I guess that's how it is. You know, you don't so. want
2: anybody to get too big ahead. <laughs>
0: Well, either that, or I just think that that when you do a thing within context, um, you know, you, well, just because we're talking about England, you know, Churchill's most famous speeches are still repeated in portions of them to this day. But it has a lot more meaning to those of us who know the outcome than it did to the people who didn't know how Mm -hmm. this was going to turn out.
2: Well, and that's like, yeah.
0: You know, Winston Churchill said that we will fight them on the sea, we'll fight them on the land, we'll fight them wherever. You know, at the time that he was saying that, there was no certainty at all that the Nazis wouldn't overrun mm-hmm. the British Isles. Mm-hmm. And they had occupied some of them. Yeah. You know, so so when he's saying all of this, it sounds great, but it's also, you know maybe you will maybe you won't so it means more to us because we hear the speech later and we go and by golly they did well you know um it might have been remembered in an entirely different way if if the people of england hadn't been as successful as he predicted they would be Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like that too it's like c.s lewis was speaking to Um, he was reaching people who needed this, but they weren't the ones who were staying at home from the war, writing about it in the local paper or in Mm -hmm. the journals or whatever, which is what all these academics were doing instead of fighting the war. Yeah. So we don't know how it affected those RAF pilots or anybody because, you know, they took it and then they went and fought the war. And these would have been young people, you Mm -hmm. know, late teens and early 20s. And uh, so now in retrospect we read it and we go wow it's it's really powerful but then if you could kind of like you know the the email i was talking about uh, it said that there were you know like 3000 five star reviews and i guess it's probably referring to amazon you know well what would be interesting is to take a, a, a overview of the demographic of I mean, you know what kind of people gave those reviews
1: mm-hmm. people
0: who eat this up and they may not be people who are in academia even now. Mm-hmm. You know, because, because academic snobs are likely to say something like, oh, I could have written that better, you know. Well, okay, whatever. C.S. Lewis is gone, and we're still talking about him. And these critics of his contemporary work are gone too, and we don't remember them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, it's Well, and
2: I think there is, like, you know, the, the time test. Like, there's there's people now... I'm I'm thinking like J.K. Rowling. Yeah. First time I read Harry Potter, I like I was in third grade, and I remember even in third grade going like, "Well, this is one of the best books that I've ever read," and I hadn't read that many at that point. And <laughs> but I remember thinking that then, and I'm I've reread them a couple of times, but now I'm going back and listening to the audiobook version, and they hold up. Yeah, like. And so I think I can say 50, 60 years from now, they're going to be going down as one of the great young adult juvenile series of all time. But I could be totally wrong because maybe tastes are totally different 50, 60 years from now. And that doesn't happen. But like
0: you just threw me through two things that just a really, it's kind of ironic and funny. Um, Number one, I was doing, I have this app that has like brain exercises, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like reading comprehension and stuff like that. And the reading comprehension article that I was doing an hour or so ago said uh, was about how children's literature is not very highly regarded in the literary world. Mm -hmm. And they cited J.K. Rowling's stuff. And and how it's it's childish, you know,
2: that is kind of the point.
0: (laughs) And and well, but the interesting thing is, is I've seen the movies at least and there's some very adult themes in there. And, 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 you know, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that snobs and and I'm calling them out, you know, because mm -hmm. because snobs are people who are self-righteous and assume that they know everything Uh, And therefore they have the authority to criticize what they consider inferior work. But, you know, they're also just jealous because this nobody, you know, Mm -hmm. lost her job because she was writing her book on the job and got caught mm-hmm. and you know now she could buy the company that she worked for that I fired so. her you know <laughs> yeah like... and it might be an indication that whether or not this is childish whether or not this is not real literature or whatever the fact is is it reached millions of people mm-hmm. and if it reached them it's because it had some literary value to them you know and that's that's what i think people forget but the other thing you threw me was is you were talking about what you read in third grade and you know i've mentioned the facebook group
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you know i wish we had more comments on the face group facebook group so please folks if you're listening get on the facebook group and post a comment so that our classroom has interaction yeah instead of you sitting there wherever you are you know in your car on your lawnmower in your house or you know whatever listening you know which is wonderful we're honored by that but at the same time it's so fun to read your thoughts and And uh, we have a contributor who who sometimes uh, just blows us away with these great comments. But it was really interesting because this particular contributor happened to mention that in third grade, um, this person tried to read the Space Trilogy Mm -hmm. and, you know, gave up after getting to the third book. And I'm thinking, third grade, man, you rock.
2: Yeah, because (laughs) because I started listening and I liked the Space Trilogy but I haven't actually finished it because I think I need to read them in hand because I started listening to them and it was a little too much for me listening. Yeah. Those yeah. are, they're a little heady.
0: They are. And, and honestly, even, even the Narnia stuff, um, it depends on how you, how you experience. And I don't want to go off of topic here, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed that this person, um, is clearly, uh, very intelligent and therefore, you know, in third grade, got through the first two of those books. And and you could read them on one level. I've read them, and you could read them on one level and find them interesting. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that his space trilogy is very interesting unless you know that it's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Chronicles of Narnia also are metaphoric, but it's also interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So so the difference between the space trilogy and Narnia is Narnia could stand alone without you knowing that it's got a Christian message underlying, but there's no mistaking the fact that the trilogy, the space trilogy is a Christian, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, a paraphrase, para, it, it. it's meant to parallel allegory. allegory. Thank you. That's a good word for it. And, 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 so i didn't have any trouble with it because i read it as you know a guy who's had several years of seminary training lots of theological reflection you know i've I've been critiqued on on numerous occasions for my way of writing and interpreting uh theological themes and that kind of thing which means i'm trained to listen for those things.
2: Well, it was not my favorite narrator. I'll say that. Yeah, and I so a different narrator.
0: So all I'm saying is is that <laughs> that the space trilogy was fine for me because I was you know a, a middle aged adult with a tremendous amount of training mm-hmm. to inform my listening, and this person got through two books yeah. in third grade.
2: And and I love kudos. I love <laughs> C. S. Lewis. I think I've made that pretty clear. But unless you're reading it that way, it's not the best science fiction. And no. I love him. But it's not, I mean, unless you're reading it from, like you said, a Christian worldview and you know that it's an allegory, as quality science fiction goes, it's probably lower on the rung.
0: It, it is. But, I, and that's I okay. I agree with that. That's it, okay
2: because he also wrote plenty of other amazing stuff.
0: And that's, like I said, that, to me, it's that, a great way to compare and contrast because... The space trilogy is trilogy is wonderful if you know that that's what you are getting is an allegory whereas Narnia you can just enjoy it's, it yeah you can just take it as it is yeah. you know so back to mere Christianity um, <clears throat> so we are looking at chapter two
1: mm-hmm.
0: and chapter two um, well okay so so I'm, I'm trying to kind of develop a style here with you i'm i'm sort of going to be the the moderator and you you know i'm going to do play-by-play and you can do color you know however you want to put this okay i don't want
2: to be the color guy
0: i know we're always griping about the color guys on the football can we games, just both but, be the
2: play-by-play
0: the color commentator i think they they actually stopped calling them color analyst. commentators they call them analysts now
2: analyst
0: right which which okay which fine is Cute. you can be the analyst color commentator commentator whatever but what I'm really driving at is is that I thought it might be good. So why don't you give like just a 20,000 foot view of chapter two like like you know okay. s- set us up for the question So
2: in the first chapter we get kind of this overview of whether or not there is this law of nature or this moral law he, laws of human nature that is a guiding force and and he gives some arguments about, like, why it's not, an like, Animal Instinct, which is going to come up in this again. And, like, he gives some arguments about why it probably should exist and does exist. So then in Chapter 2, which is titled Some Objections, which is, like, a very clear and to the point title, he addresses some th- some letters and things he's gotten from people saying, like, uh, like, saying things that they're not so sure about when it comes to the moral law and kind of his rebuttal to what they're saying. And he uses... I really think it's cool, I'm, and I think probably as we go through this stuff it, it's going to come up, but he uses this kind of consistent image of music. mm mm-hmm. um, And that is a... It, it's a really cool juxtaposition to what he's talking about with the moral law um, as an example of, like, why it is a thing that needs to be happening and why it isn't some of these other things that people are calling him to task over. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he gives, there's okay. just like a couple of.
0: All right. So let's look at uh, the first objection. Is it, isn't the moral law, a law of human nature just as innate or inbred as herd instinct? And, what are some of the herd instincts that Lewis makes note of?
2: So he talks about how, like, like herd instincts refers to any of those, like, so-called animal instincts, like, and I think it's interesting the ones he says because I wouldn't have thought of them as herd instincts, but I guess, like, when I start to think about it more, it makes sense. So he says, like, um, mother love or, like, um, an instinct to get food or an instinct for, reproduction those are all herd instincts or like um he even mentions like an instinct to help another person is a herd instinct because if we're animals in a herd like our instinct is to keep the herd safe Mm -hmm. um and so those are all like groups like uh, like keeping the group well
0: driven by impulses or desires yeah
2: and and impulses or desires to keep the group whole Right. So.
0: Whereas the moral law is perceived or felt differently mm-hmm. from a desire or an impulse. And he speaks to that by saying that moral law is this sort of sense of ought to do something. Yes. And, uh, and it's not the same as a want or desire.
2: Yeah, because he gives the example of, like, wanting to help a person who's in danger and that's your herd instinct but then you also have this self-preservation instinct which i guess still kind of goes with the herd instinct but it's separate cuz you want to keep yourself alive mm-hmm. maybe more than you want to keep other people alive and and he says that like if those are the two sides there's got to be something in the middle that pushes you to save yourself and put save someone else and put yourself in danger mm-hmm. and that's got to be the moral law yeah because otherwise, the stronger, well, I'm getting ahead, sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, we're,
0: <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Um, so, yeah, um, basically then a moral law is is not an instinct or an impulse, but it's the judgment that causes us to either respond to the instinct or impulse positively or negatively. It's discernment. You know, it's discernment. Yeah. You know, your instinct says run away from the burning building, but your moral judgment says, no, there's someone in there I, I need can, to help. Yeah. And so you you ignore the instinct and go. And that's a moral that's or, a, you, or you so at a least
2: m- let your judgment and discernment lean you toward one instinct or the other.
0: Right. And and the moral law is actually that judgment, not mm-hmm. the outcome. Right. Yeah. So that that's what he says. So then using music as an analogy, Mm -hmm. how does Lewis distinguish the moral law from an instinct?
2: So he talks about sheet music and how sheet music tells you, like, when to play certain notes on the piano. And that if we're saying that moral law is one of those instincts, then you might as well be saying that Like the notes are the
0: keys. I I don't know if that if I made that clear. Yeah, an instinct is like one note on a keyboard or a note on a piano, and moral law is like a sheet music.
2: Mm -hmm. Like it tells us what to play. So the moral law is telling you which key to press. Like it's the sheet music. It's not the keys on the keyboard or the specific notes.
0: So an instinct is not right or wrong in and of itself any more than a key is right or wrong. And yet even an untrained musician can tell when someone's playing the song and they hit the wrong note. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can be sitting in church listening to the fabulous musicians we have at church. And you know when they made a really blatant mistake because it just screams at you, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's not the note's fault. It's because somehow the law that's on the page wasn't followed right either by accident or decision or whatever although I have a certain favorite kind of music um, not music but a, a certain style of music I really like that that uh, uh, you know it's called dissonant I I love like Finncaraldi
1: <laughs> because
0: he he makes so much of his jazz music includes dissonant chords And for those
2: who don't know who that is like all of Charlie Brown music. Yeah, Charlie and on Christmas. Dissonant All chords
0: sound good, even though there's always one note that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that has to do with this discussion. I really am tempted to try to make something of it
3: because
1: the sheet I don't think music I will. is the law. Yeah. I don't
0: know. So I don't know, maybe maybe it's a musician, Maybe so you know, maybe it's a slight bending of the law, you yeah. know, that still produces harmony, but a dissonant harmony. Mm-hmm. But I love dissonance in music because it's still harmony and yet it's fresh and different and I think that's what I like about it and I think that if if there is a parallel in life it's just that not all dissonance is bad.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, I think a little dissonance in life is you a good know, thing.
0: It's not really a problem because if, if you... all of us in the church don't see things the same way. Well,
2: and there's... there's it still makes I- good music. There's an, like a, a, an idea in psychology called cognitive dissonance, and it's when something that you have like stuck in your brain that's like a schema for you... Mm-hmm. Like it's something that's very pivotal for you doesn't match up with something that happens in, in the world around you. That's cognitive dissonance. And sometimes that's a really good thing because your schema might be wrong. And so when something happens in the world around you, you kind of have to rewrite that schema and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. So dissonance in, in life is not necessarily bad. It can usually help you
1: Yeah. get and, more
2: on track.
0: and And on a real, you know, sort of, ethereal level i i think that it's like a mosaic or a tapestry it's really okay if everything doesn't match up perfectly because it creates a certain harmony of its own Mm -hmm. that's that's what a dissonant chord does and i think in human relationships you can have that and not lose the harmony but then you can also have just flat out wrong
3: Mm -hmm.
0: notes that create disharmony Mm -hmm. so so harmony is subject to the degree of dissonance yeah you know and so that's so it's a little bit of an aside but believe it or not i can equate dissonant chords in music to you know church board meetings i can actually find that in my own head Okay, so another way to make this distinction is by supposing we had two opposing instincts, mm-hmm. but no inner moral law. Mm-hmm. So according to Lewis, what would determine which instinct would be followed?
2: Well, see, that's where I started to get ahead of myself a little. Mm-hmm. So he says, like, if the, if they're in conflict and we don't have this moral law in between, then the stronger instinct's going to win. Which, like, in the case of choosing whether or not to save a drowning man or save yourself because if you go into the water, you're putting yourself in danger. Like the self-preservation instinct is going to win out Mm -hmm. if there's no moral law. So, and I'm trying to, I don't think he gives another example of that specifically, but like, well, I think that's actually
0: found in the next question. Um, Why can't there be one impulse, which is always good. That is actually the moral law.
2: Yeah. And that's like, It's a whole paragraph, so I won't read it all, but it's really interesting because he talks about how like it's like there are no impulses, which the moral law is going to tell you to shut down because they're bad Mm
1: -hmm. all the
2: time. And there's no impulses that the moral law is going to say should always be on because they're always good. And he uses like love, like a mother's love and patriotism Mm -hmm. as like examples of ones that you would think would always be good. And then, like, the sex or fighting instinct are ones that would always be bad. But then he turns around and says, like, there are times where a mother's love might need to be turned off because it might have a negative impact on other children. Mm -hmm. Or, like, patriotism can go too far. (laughs) Um, And then, like, you know... um, if you're a soldier, fighting instinct's not a bad thing necessarily because mm-hmm. you need to do it. So he, he gives some good examples of, like, one instinct isn't always going to win out, um, and that's what what the moral law says. That's, right. how, that's how it comes in, and it's like, hey, in this particular situation, you need to do this, even though normally you would never do this. Um, and, like, I think that's what pushes people, you know, I like, I don't think, I, I feel like I could never hurt another human being in a really detrimental way like i i don't know that i could go to war
3: mm-hmm.
2: but i think like the, this is a good example of like the moral law wins out and if you're in a position where you have to be involved in something like that
0: well i know how much you, know. you love your little sister despite the frustrations you <laughs> occasionally experience with her if some person was attacking her yeah and, and preying on her weakness because she's disabled yeah I don't think that you would withhold any energy or resource at hand.
2: That's probably
0: protecting true. her. So you being a very nonviolent gentle person for the sake of your very vulnerable mm-hmm. little sister, you'd probably hit him over the head with a chair or beat him with your hands or whatever, that is true. you know, you would be violently predisposed towards this person because because you're trying to protect your sister. Mm-hmm. So that's really what he's talking about is, is your nonviolence is a certain kind of personal moral code. Yeah. And yet, or like, you know, it's a, you know, it's not a hundred percent because, because for the sake of something that's even more important to you.
2: Yeah. Well, like, I don't know if we need another example, but like you and I have had conversations because of things, you know, working in a school and because of things that are happening more and more often in schools, we've talked about like,
3: what would you what do would if there I was do? an active shooter but in if your there, school?
2: But I, but I, and I think it would be absolutely terrifying, but I also know in my heart, deep in my heart, that if there was someone coming after any child of mine, which as far as I'm concerned when I'm working in a school, they're, they're my kids. Sure, sure.
0: That's just the um, natural instinct of a you know, teacher yeah, or educator. We
2: just can't help ourselves. And I'm like, I've told you, I, like, I don't want to put myself in danger, but if it's me or the 24 kids in my classroom, yeah. it's me. Yeah. Like and and that's the moral law I think like self preservation yeah. loses if it means keeping ba- those those babies safe like right. that's um, or like even today we were down which, in the basement with which the is tornado really, yeah you know, like, <laughs> and, you know I was just thinking though
0: that you've just given a really brilliant example because look at the things you just described you you described the instinct to protect yourself
3: mm-hmm.
0: you described a herd instinct because a adult.
2: Yeah, keep, I gotta is keep the babies it's trying to protect okay, yeah. the
0: vulnerable, you know, because mm-hmm. because because adult hyenas protect baby hyenas mm-hmm. from threats. Adult mm-hmm. adult wildebeests will protect the babies from a threat. Yeah, the difference mm-hmm. is is when it looks like a lost cause, the wildebeest just walk away. Right, where you'll make a moral decision to if all if nothing else, you'll lay your body over theirs and let your body take the, the, the flying debris and yeah. the tornado or the whatever, that's where you just made a moral decision that mm-hmm. a wildebeest won't make. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've gone back and forth across the line two <laughs> or three times in your analogy, and that's a really good example, I think. Um, it's kind of, kind of interesting. So yeah. I think we've answered the question really well because of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so what's the second objection?
2: Oh yeah, sorry. I was still looking at the other paragraph because he he talks about the music again.
0: Oh okay, sorry. No, that's okay. I just thought I'd jump on.
2: Um, so the second objection is about like, um,
0: is it moral I I law? Something? Simply a social convention?
2: Yeah, sorry, it's it's about social conventions.
0: So moral law, he he's saying is the objection is is that people would argue and.
2: Like that you've been taught. We hear
0: this argument in the news oh, today. Yeah. The argument is, is that, that I mean, it's, it's in the news. I, I'm not really intending to make this about that. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the United Methodist Conference where they were trying to decide what our moral responsibility is regarding homosexuality mm-hmm. and so forth. And it really came down to, well, that's a learned thing. Some people were arguing that the reason that Christians are opposed to it isn't because God is opposed to it. It's only because they've been taught to oppose it, you know. And then the argument from the conservative side is, is, well, no, that's not right. The Bible is pretty explicit about that. And... You know, but the fact is is both parties in, in this argument, of course there's many are many in the middle, but, but the the extreme views in this in this particular debate both hold that they're right and they're convinced that their interpretation is morally sound. You know, um, that it's immoral to reject a person in any way, shape or form because that's not Jesus. He wouldn't reject and then the other side would argue, well, it's immoral to not reject certain behaviors because Jesus even said, I'm taking you as you are, but now I'm asking you to go and sin no more. So so there's a moral imperative either way you go, and it mm-hmm. really just depends on mm-hmm. which one you want to latch on to. And so that's kind of the argument, you know, is there an absolute moral law?
2: Yeah.
0: And so that's, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so people wrote to, wrote to him and said like, well, isn't it? Isn't it just something that's taught to us? Which goes back to the nature nurture thing, I think. Like, are we born with an inherent moral code, or are we taught a moral code?
0: Well, so what are some of the inherent uh, moral codes that you've learned from your parents? (laughs) And this is a general question, but then you happen to be talking to your father, so it's... I don't know. Be careful what you say, right?
2: Well, I mean, I don't know about parents, but just, like, there are societal conventions you learn, like... Like, that you should stay on the sidewalk and not walk down the middle of the road. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, Putting napkins on your lap. Right. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, you know, the whole driving. Which, which side, which side put of the, the road. On which stuff. side of the road do you drive on? He he mentions that. Yeah, and, that. and
2: it makes me laugh because he says that, like, that you should drive on the left side of the road. But then he goes back and he's like, well. Some people might have learned that the other
0: way. (laughs) Well, what's really remarkable, and, and, you know, for, for my friends who do Bible study with me live and in person, they can tell that I'm being very tame when I do the podcast. Because if I were in a live and in person and not trying to maintain a tight schedule and all this, I'd just go ahead and tell a story like this. So I'm going to tell a story. I am convinced that the British are actually correct about which side of the road to drive on. It doesn't mean I have any desire to switch the way we drive here in America, but I now understand, and it all stems from the, the the way I was taught this was by a British friend of mine many years ago who was very learned and wise and also keen on making sure that this, this young American lad he liked to call Sonny Jim would... Um, you know, be more wise about these things as well. And he made me understand that if you think about it, you, you, if you think about when roads were traveled before cars and, and particularly carriages, people rode on horseback or they walked. And the vast majority of people are right handed. And so you would walk on the left side of the road or ride your horse on the left side of the road because if you have an enemy approaching you, you would pull your sword with your right hand and raise it above you. And so you didn't want like on a tree covered lane to pull your sword and then have it stuck in the tree limbs. So if you walked on the left side of the road or rode on the left side of the road, you were pulling it to the place where you had the most likelihood of you know, being able to draw your weapon and protect yourself or defend yourself. And, and this was just one argument that was given. But there was a lot of logic to the fact that people driving and, you know, and the funny thing is, is like if you look at airplanes or locomotives or boats, the captain's seat, the driver's seat is on the right side, except our automobiles. And and so there's something sort of subtle underlying our, our culture that yeah, says because we
2: ditched the brits
0: so that's and and honestly if you look at nations where they drive on the right side of the road like we do they all have one thing in common they were disrespecting the empire plain because and simple. we
2: threw that tea in the harbor that's
0: right you got that's it. my
2: favorite joke yeah i didn't say the whole joke i'll have to say
0: but but time. you know i it's just really fascinating so so this 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 is and that's a really good example then I feel because like why a do Americans like <laughs> why do Americans drive on the right side of the road? Ultimately, it's because we were telling the British where to go,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know. And and you don't know that when you're driving your car and you know you're 16 and you're learning to drive in, in 2018 or 19 or whatever. But that's that's really the origin story. Is that whether the British were right or wrong? the, the fact is is we in America drive on the right side of the road because it's the opposite of the way the british did and we kicked them out of here and so if that isn't a perfect example of a learned you know (laughs) sort of sort of thing you know a convention maybe
2: my attitude toward the british is learned actually i think they're wonderful
0: i love the british and and i i would love to spend a great deal of time in england and and you know the uh in in the grand scheme of things the that we owe a great deal to england and and uh you know that's all i'll say about that i think it's really
2: funny he gives a funny example where he's talking about how like we all learn multiplication tables in school yeah and but if you're a kid growing up on like a desert island or even like just a really remote nation like you know in any remote place where maybe that's not as important to your life Uh uh-huh then that's not a, that's not a, like a human convention. Right. Somebody will say, "What's well, three times three. And you're like, I don't want even talking about because it's not something you've learned. So it's not a human convention, even though if you talk to pretty much any adult in the English speaking world and, you know, a lot of the other parts of the world where people do math, they and, know what and it yet,
0: is. And yet the person growing up on the desert island could make three piles with three coconuts in each pile. Yeah, and conclude that they have nine,
2: but they couldn't like you know memorize
0: right, the but they wouldn't learn the multiplication, the multiplication table. table. Yeah, I, I get it. That's this fascinating. So, what's an example then of a real truth which exists, whether or not it was ever taught? <laughs> and does what kind of thing does Lewis cite? Well, first of all, before we go to Lewis's citation, we just gave one really a. Convention is the multiplication table. The moral, or the absolute truth is, is that if you have three piles of coconuts with three coconuts in each one, you're always going to end up with nine.
2: And that's like his example is mathematics, yeah. which I can't stand. That that's the real truth. One. Well, because math just I and I I know like math math is the always
0: like I said whether math. you know whether you know the <laughs> multiplication tables or not makes my head hurt the fact is is if you have three piles of coconuts with three coconuts in each pile you get nine
2: and delightfully we are recording this on pi day (laughs) 314 which is like one of the most like famous math like truths
0: you know i was working out at uh, the gym the other day and on one of the tvs they had the movie lucy which I really liked, and I'd like to watch it again um, because it was playing, but there was no volume, you know. I haven't seen it. And, and uh, I happened to look up when she was explaining. So basically, Lucy is a person who, who wasn't particularly bright or anything, wasn't particularly spectacular, but she happened to have been uh, roped into serving as a mule to transport a particularly potent new kind of psychotropic drug or whatever and um and it and it explodes in her and so all of a sudden her body absorbs this whole huge bag of this stuff and she turns into a superhuman like she she turns into somebody who who has accelerated their their adaptation evolution whatever you want to call it and and right before she basically becomes a uh an entity of thought rather than a physical being anymore she explains a lot of things that now that 100% involvement of her brain rather than the small percentage that they say we use and and one of the things she says that that's really interesting is she says you know all that idea about math being absolute it's not really true you know? <laughs> and she argues that basically that there are um that time is the absolute mm. that that math is not the absolute it's time because If you speed time up then things that don't appear at a certain speed are highly visible at another speed and vice versa you can see a car go by because you see it in real time and it takes it several seconds to go by but if you speed up time it's like it never existed Mm -hmm. and so she was just saying that time's the only constant so I don't know, I Just I, it, that is completely irrelevant. I just thought it was fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a great thought exercise. So what was a example that Lewis gave of a real truth? Math. Math. So we covered that.
1: hmm
0: Okay, then let's just jump right the ahead. What, what two reasons does Lewis give for the moral law being a reality and not a convention?
2: Well, so first he goes back to, like, the last chapter where he talks about like the differences between things that are considered moral in different countries or cultures and how, if you dig down to their roots, they're really not that different.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and like that there's just not as big a gap and that if you, if you, and he goes back to the convention thing and says like, if you're digging down to the roots of those, the differences are those human conventions. like, the road rule which side of the road you're driving on or like like what's appropriate for people to wear right um and then he also says that like if you start thinking about those differences then you would also have to stop and think like that one morality is better than another
0: yeah yeah yeah, basically saying if you think one morality is better than another, then you're actually introducing a third yeah. moral law. Right. Because you're evaluating the other two by something.
2: Yeah, you're judging, you're discerning.
0: So there has to be an absolute because at some point you're no longer like, and and this is, I'm again, I'm taking a little sidetrack here. But one of the most common questions that you get, especially when you're talking with little kids is okay, who made God, right? And the answer is, nobody made God, God is. Well, then how did God happen to be? Well, we can't answer that. God yeah. is. Yeah. And so there is an end, you know, th- there's a terminus for this thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, you know, someday you can ask God, well, who made you? And even God's probably going to say, Nobody made me. I just am, mm-hmm. you know. Well, what were you doing before you made everything else? Yeah. I just am, you know. Yeah. That's and, and what's, in, is it, what's really interesting is, is that's what he says in the Bible. But even if you don't believe the Bible is true, if you believe there's a God or an ultimate being, then the name for this God would have to be I am. Mm-hmm. Because what else could yeah. you say? What Hell, what else you can you say?
2: It? Yeah, he, he uh, you know. he's here. He is.
0: So even if you don't believe in the Bible, the fact that God simply is explains God's nature. Yeah. <laughs> Plain and simple.
2: And this does like this gets a little bit not hairy, but it gets a little wild because like he says that like it like you said, he's saying that we have like we are like we're already we already do it. Right. Like he gives the example of like we judge between whether we prefer civilized morality versus a savage morality or Christian morality versus Nazi morality. And he says, obviously, like you can see we're all making that discernment, which means that there's some so-called right morality that we're judging against. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from?
0: (laughs) And that's a perfect segue to the last question for this episode. What is Lewis's reply to the argument that moral law was responsible for witch burning in the past?
2: Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. He he says, like, the difference is that, like, now we don't believe in that. For the most part, I mean, there's... That was t- me, not Bethany. <laughs> Thanks. For the most part, we don't believe in witches. Like, there are certainly people out there practicing witchcraft, but the difference is, is like, we don't believe that they're actually performing magic. We think that they're doing something kind of dark and evil. Um, At least most people do. Um, And that's what he's saying is, like, now we don't believe in witches, so we're not going to go burn them at the stake because we don't believe that they're actually doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And if we did believe that, then it would, like, we would be saying, like, if they're actual practicing witches, then they're doing something supernatural because they've done, like, a deal with the devil. Right. And who's to say we shouldn't be?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: In Like, Inflicting a death penalty on people doing that is kind of what he's saying. And so he's basically, yeah. Like,
0: so he's saying witch burning isn't really an error of moral law; it's an error in facts. Right. They've they've not made a moral decision that was so bad. Really, they've made a decision based on their ignorance because they culturally, didn't understand.
2: they believed that witches were yeah. real.
0: And since we don't believe witches witches really exist, we believe that people practice. Yes witchcraft but we don't really believe that what they're doing is anything more than it's not a Harry lifestyle Potter. choice yeah. you know because they're not really manifesting some you know unreal reality or something so anyway unreality and so basically if that really happened then there might have been justification for torturing and killing people
2: but they weren't doing it because now my only argument to him and I don't I would love to have this conversation with him there's a whole lot of evidence like of the burnings and trials in America I don't know about in yeah, England yeah. but in America there's plenty of evidence that it was like neighbors being horrible to each other. Yeah, I mean if you really wanted so, to
0: argue about burning witches as an as an issue of moral law, if anything was a failure of moral law, it was the fact that people made immoral or amoral decisions about how to apply it.
2: Yes, like they you know, were because there was a lot I mean there's so much evidence and this is don't make, don't let me go off on a tangent, but there's well, so know, but like there's so much evidence that
0: you find out that, that many you, many you know,
2: of these women and even some of the men that were
0: If this family experienced a major catastrophic loss, you could take control of their property because, you know...
2: Well, there's that, but also just, like, anybody that was a little bit outside of the norm of society. Yeah. So some, like, you know, just, just someone who might have been suffering mental illness. Yeah. Someone who just was quirky like they if, if people, if the people in charge didn't like them and I'd say that's a moral thing. Could
0: you imagine? I just, this just dawned on me and it probably won't be anything all that profound to you. But I was just thinking, could you imagine during that particular period if somebody was some sort of autistic savant?
2: Oh, they'd be burned.
0: Because on one hand they're saying and doing things that are remarkable Because they can just tell you how many toothpicks fell out of the box, like Rain Man, right? And yet a regular person who doesn't have any comprehension of what's really going on with this person would say, how could you possibly do that if you're not possessed by a demon or something?
2: And history has shown us,
0: you know, like not
2: even just in the witch trials, but history has shown us over and over again that probably a lot of people who were put to death or seen as like fringe society members, it was because they were dealing with things like this yeah so i another aside there's this thing like there's a lot of argument going around that like we're we're over diagnosing autism and adhd and things like that and we probably are but we also were totally under diagnosing for a very long time because we didn't know the things we know now so
0: i i don't i don't have a side on that mm -hmm. but i do agree that on one hand you know if there's a market then there's going to be somebody trying to exploit that.
2: Right, which I think these are all moral things too. But I like, also
0: think that there are a lot of people <clears> out there who are just just glad they have an explanation for what's going on with their kid. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and sometimes an because explanation is as fearful.
2: Like it's scary.
0: Like like the one thing I would hate to see and I believe I've witnessed this even before you became the professional with kids, but but, you know, somebody is so desperate for an explanation for why their kid acts the way they do that they'll also desperately choose to over-medicate them and then just pretty much turn them into these, you know, zombies. zombies. So, so yeah, I mean, so it's it's a dangerous thing, but the reality is, is it's always comforting when you can explain what's going on. Mm-hmm. But then you have to be reasonable. And I, and I think that's a perfect way to kind of wrap this part of the conversation is is just like your analogy of protecting the kids at the school. This analogy or this reality is basically a case where you're crisscrossing the line where you're looking for an absolute, but you're also trying to make a moral decision and and you know, sometimes it's a process of experimentation.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: you know, and and having raised five children and two with disabilities you know, mom and I've had to make some hard decisions that were gonna affect our kids with disabilities for the rest of their lives. And it was equal parts of facts and moral things. Mm-hmm. Like, like, we can do this because if we don't, they'll die. Mm-hmm. This we can do, but if we don't, it just means that their lifestyle could be significantly different, either better or worse. So some of the decisions we made for them to undergo surgeries and permanent changes to their body were moral mm-hmm. and some of the decisions we made were life and death. It was just black and white. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was really much up for debate. We just had to agree. And and then again, we're also trying to make an informed decision, but the people who are informing us are limited mm-hmm. and we don't have time to search the world for a collective opinion that seems trustworthy. So,
2: well, and I you think know, it's like, just hard. I think the the witch burning thing could circle back to what you said about like, putting a name to something, because when it's unknown, it's kind of scary. And they didn't know what a lot of, like, I still think that, and I, again, would love to have this conversation with him someday, maybe in heaven we'll get to, Mm. but, like, there were a lot of people who were doing it out of fear and spite towards people that they were frightened by, you know, the fringe society members, but... They were also putting a name to something they didn't understand. Right. So they were calling people witches who actually might have been autistic or might have been schizophrenic. And it gave them some weird comfort to be able to, to say, be able to well, say, that's well, that's because they're, they do they're that. witches. They're doing yeah. weird things because they're witches, and then yeah. being able to do something about it made them feel like they had some <laughs> power. Wow.
0: I really blasted the microphone. Sorry about your ears, there, <laughs> listeners. I think I may have injured you. Or was you.
2: it me? I don't know.
3: Ah, well, Sorry. you know.
0: Uh, it's kind of funny when we're making this recording, I can see our voices <laughs> being reproduced in a, in a you know, uh, a visual form and sort of wavelengths, you know. And
2: he, his very last note in the chapter is funny. It says, you would not call a man, a man humane for ceasing to set mousetraps if he did so because he believed there were no mice in his house. <laughs> so if he didn't put mousetraps out because he didn't think there were mice in his house, you're not going to be like, oh, what a sweet guy. You're only going to say, oh, what a sweet, kind-hearted person if he's not putting mousetraps out and he has mice everywhere. Yeah. So uh, That's
0: very good. He's good. Well, all right. We've, we've covered Chapter 2 of Book 1. Any final thoughts? Mm,
2: no. Like I said, he's good.
0: All right. Well, then all that remains is for me to say thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We're honored. And please join us on the Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. If you're not a member just simply go to the group and request membership and I will personally invite you if you are a member please comment we really appreciate these comments and and you know we're learning as we go in the last year or so we've learned that maybe we talked up somebody's comment a little too much and embarrassed them so we're trying to be a lot more judicious in the way that we re- respond and yet we've, we cherish your conversation uh, you know you can also send emails or whatever um, to reach out to me in some way other than through the Facebook group, um, just, just uh, pull up uh, shilohum.org, that's Shiloh, shilohum.org, and that's the website for Shiloh Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana that I pastor, and that'll bring you into connection with us in a way that will help you reach out to me. And you can hear sermons and so forth. And, of course, on this particular uh, Podbean link that I use to put these up there for you to receive, you can get those sermons and other information. So uh, we're trying to be cross-platform. If if you're a glutton for punishment, you can even see me on YouTube. And, again, just go to Shiloh in Jasper, Indiana, or Google my name. And uh, basically, these are some of the things you can do. But we really would like to hear from you, and we really value your input. But uh, we're really having a good time with this study, Mm -hmm. and uh, I hope you appreciate the simplified format. I hope that's working for you. But uh, anyhow, uh, for now, I just want to say, you know, thanks again. We're honored, and uh, God bless you, and goodbye.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye.